The Finding Holy podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. For what a man loves, that a man is. What a man chooses out of a hundred offers, you are sure by that who and what that man is. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered this sermon, The Magnificence of Prayer, was preached by Alexander White in 1895 or possibly 96 in Scotland. Joel, one thing I think we all take for granted is prayer. We have the God of the universe that we can talk to, and yet sometimes we forget to do it at all. And how are we supposed to pray? How long are we supposed to pray? What are we supposed to say during prayer? Even the disciples in Luke chapter 11 asked the question to Jesus, how do we pray? Alexander White in this sermon began a series of over 20 sermons where he answers the basic questions of prayer, um, how to do it, why it's important. And this sermon really focuses on the importance of prayer. And it, it was such a good sermon. I knew we had to put it in the Revive Thought series. I loved the sermon. But when we did more research on who Alexander White was, we realized he himself doesn't actually quite live up to his own sermon standards. Troy, Alexander White, always dreamed of being a minister, but didn't come from the best background. He was born in January 1836 in Scotland, and he would die in 1921 at the age of 85. His mother got pregnant out of wedlock, and his father asked his mother to marry him, uh, but since his father wasn't a Christian, his mother declined the proposal. She said that marrying him would actually make it two sins instead of one. Uh, so his father left and he went to America. He actually became a successful businessman in America. And later on during the American Civil War, he actually came to know the Lord himself, which is a, a really neat turn of events, really neat family dynamic. Uh, but that left his mom alone to raise a son in the 1800s, which uh, meant she had to work very hard. There weren't as many charities and outreach programs back then. At a young age, he would have to start working, too. He taught himself to read by buying magazines that were to help one learn to read, and he borrowed books from the neighborhood kids. They were too poor to buy books themselves. Uh, from there, he would become a shoemaker, and he used the money he earned from uh, cleaning and making shoes, and he would always be said to be having a book in front of him while he did it, and he used that money to get a better education. A professor saw him doing all of this, felt pity on him, and said, look, I will teach you Greek and Latin, but you, it'll be up to you to pay for college. From the earliest of days, he loved going to church. His mother took him to church, and he would have his grandmother take him to another service, and uh, it was said that he himself went to a third church service on his own, Uh, and so he he couldn't get enough of it. He loved attending to church and listening to the ministers, and he wanted to become one himself. He wanted to become a leader in that way, but uh, becoming a minister requires theological training, and theological training requires money and he didn't have any money his him and his mother were very poor uh so he wrote to his father who again had become a, a wealthy businessman in america at this point and his father agreed to help get him through college and, and pay for some of that ministry training so at this point he starts to minister in a church and he becomes a very famous preacher and eventually gets called the prince of scottish preachers 
He is very much a revivalist. He actually had preached before this time during the revivals of 1859 and 1860, which had started in America but totally swept over um, Britain and Scotland and these other places. And when he started as a preacher, he loved using illustrations, and he was it was big into this tent movement and evangelism. And one of the first things he does as a minister at this church is he holds a big evangelistic tent outreach movement. And these two Americans join him up on the stage preaching, and one of those Americans is D.L. Moody, someone from one of our earlier episodes and a very famous preacher in his own right. Now, later in his life, he seems to be influenced by different directions. Uh, although Alexander White did a lot for the church, he was always considered a prolific preacher. He loved education, too. And, you know, maybe it's this love for education that, that drove him to this, but he came, he became caught up in kind of the theological liberalness of, of that era. We know that he had some, some close friends that were theological liberals, and uh, we, we know we, we have accounts of him recommending some of their books. Yeah, and when we say theological liberalness, and we've talked about this on the show before, but this was an era when a lot of the seminaries, a lot of the churches were moving in the direction of taking the word of God and saying, you know what, we don't think it's inerrant anymore. In fact, we think it's probably just a good book, but gets a lot of the history wrong. This is an era when people are saying, you know, maybe the church isn't as necessary as we think it is. This is an era when people are saying, you know, there's really no difference between any of the sects of the church, and they should all just kind of join together and be one church anyway. And in that movement, in that era, he doesn't really stand in the way. He has the power to call out some of this stuff, but he never really does. And his friends, it's kind of a guilt by association, but a lot of his friends that he defends are these kind of guys, some of whom get called heretics by the church later on. Now, in his own life, he doesn't stop preaching sin. He never stops preaching Jesus Christ's atoning work on the cross. He always has a respect for God in his sermons. And if anything, some people say maybe he just lacked a discerning spirit. It's hard to tell because, honestly, this was 120 years ago in a very different era, in a very different time and place than we live in now. It's hard to say how much we can say, oh, he did this wrong or did this right. How much would we survive scrutiny 120 years based on what our friends are doing? I don't know. At the same time, too, um, it's also important to note that this is a guy who was born to a mom who you know, had to raise him alone. He was a shoemaker, and he goes on to become one of the greatest preachers Scotland ever produces. So it's still a very impressive story, and his sermons do not reflect any of the misgivings that sometimes his character brings up. Yeah, I find it interesting what we do here on, on this show on Revive Thought sometimes, where we, we you know, we, we dissect someone's life that lived 100, 200, 300 years ago, 400 years ago sometimes. We spend, And we spend so much time trying to figure out what kind of a person they were and, and, and how they communicated and how they related uh, to the people around them. And a lot of them, you know, on, on several of them, and this one in particular, I, I would have loved to have Alexander White in the room. I'd love to talk with him and figure out what he was thinking and what's going through his head. You know, Troy mentioned that, that phrase being guilty by association uh, earlier, and I think that's that's the, the what most people condemn him for, what most people associate him with, because um, he was in a he was in a powerful position. He had a lot of influence over the culture at that time, uh, and he had the power to to stop or fight against the turning tide of liberalism at that time. And, and from what we can see, he doesn't seem to have done it. So it's it's kind of a sad turn of events, and, and it leaves me with a lot of questions. Like I said, I would have loved to, to be in a room with him and, and, and talk to him about what might have been going through his head. Well said, Joel. And also, at Revive Thoughts, like, we 
we try to include both sides of the story. That means we're introducing sometimes people you've really not done a lot of research on. And we try to do our best to say, here's what one side says, here's what another side says. You know, we're not there. Sometimes when we look back at the sources, especially in the case of Alexander White, there wasn't a ton of information to go through in the research. And sometimes the only people who are talking about him are his critics. But sometimes, you know, critics can take something and go too far in a way that other people in the era might have been like, no, we, we thought he was a great Christian man. We, we don't know. This is a tough one. I will say, though, when it comes to the sermon, I think he hammers home the importance of prayer in our life. He gives some really good reasons why we have to pray and pray more and take prayer seriously. And honestly, I walked away from listening to the sermon thinking, wow, I, need, I am convicted and I need to spend more time praying and really just realizing how serious prayer is in my life. Lord, teach us to pray, Luke 11, 1. A royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 9. I am an apostle, said Paul. I magnify my office, and we also have an office. Our office is not the apostolic office, but Paul would be the first to say to us that our office is quite as magnificent as ever his office was. Let us then magnify our office. Let us magnify its magnificent opportunities, its monumentous duties, and its incalculable and everlasting rewards. For our office is the royal priesthood, and we do not nearly enough magnify and exalt our royal priesthood. To be kings and priests of God, what a magnificent office is that. But then we who hold that office are men of such small and limited minds, our souls so in decline that we so cling to this earth that we never so much as attempt to rise to the height and the splendor of our magnificent office. If our minds were only enlarged and exalted up at all to our office, we would be found pursuing God far more than we are, with our scepter in our hand and with our crown upon our head. If we magnified our office as Paul magnified his office, we would achieve as magnificent results in our office as he ever achieved in his. The truth is, Paul's magnificent results were achieved more in our office than in his own. It was because Paul added on the royal priesthood to the Gentile apostleship that he achieved such magnificent results in that apostleship. And if we would but magnify our royal priesthood as Paul did, it hasn't even entered into our hearts so much as to conceive what God has prepared for those who properly perform their office as kings and priests of God. And the magnificence of all true prayer and its nobility, its royalty, its absolute divinity all stand in this, that it is the greatest kind of act and office that man or angel can ever enter on and perform. Earth is at its very best and heaven is at its very highest when men and angels magnify their office of prayer and praise before the throne of God. Number one. The magnificence of God is the source and the measure of the magnificence of prayer. Think magnificently of God, says Paternus to his son. Consider the heavens, the work of his fingers, the moon and the stars which he has ordained. Consider the intellectual heavens also, angels and archangels. Consider mankind also, made in the image of God. Consider Jesus Christ, the express image of his person. Consider a past eternity and a coming eternity and the revelation that is made to us in the word of God and in the hearts of his people, and I defy you to think anything other than magnificently of God. And then after all that, I equally defy you to forget or neglect or restrain prayer. 
If you begin to think rightly of him who is the hearer of prayer and who awaits to be gracious to you, I absolutely defy you to live any longer the life you now live. First of all, my child, says Paternus to his son, think magnificently of God, magnify his providence, adore his power, frequent his service, and pray to him frequently and instantly. Bear him always in your mind. Teach your thoughts to reverence him in every place, for there is no place where he is not. From there, my child, fear and worship and love God, first and last, think magnificently of God. Number two, why has God established prayer, asks Pascal. And Pascal's first answer to his own great question is this, God has established prayer in this mortal world in order to communicate to his creatures the dignity of causes, that is to say, to give us a touch and a taste of what it is to be a creator. But then, there are some things ultimate and incausable, says Bacon, that interpreter of nature, and whatever things are indeed ultimate to us and incausable by us, them God has put in his own power. But there are many other things, and things that far more concern us, that he communicates to us to have a hand and cause and creation in. Not immediately, and at our own rash and hot hand, but always under his holy hand, and under the peace of his holy will. So says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, as he clothes his priests with salvation. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hand. And what a thing for God to say to a man. What a magnificent office. What a more than royal dignity. What a gracious command and what a sure encouragement is that to pray. For ourselves first, as his sons, and then for our fellows, even as they are prodigal and as undeserving as we are. Ask of me. Even when a father is wounded and offended by his son, even then you feel sure that you have his heartstrings in your hand. And when you take boldness and venture back, he falls on your neck and cries. Number three. Oh, what a noble God we have, says Pascal, that God shares his creatorship with us. And I will, to the praise and the glory of God this day, add this, that he makes us the architects of our own estates and the fashioners of our own fortunes. It is good enough that we inherit a fortune in this world's goods, if it is not our lasting loss. Only there is nothing great, nothing noble, nothing magnanimous or magnificent in that. But to have begun life with nothing, and to have climbed up by pure virtue, by labor, and by self-denial, and by perseverance, to the very top, this world has no better praise to give her best sons than that. But there's another, a better world, of which this world is at its best but a scaffolding, the preparation and the porch. And to be the architect of our own fortune in that world will be to our everlasting honor. Now there is this magnificence about the world of prayer, that in it we work out not our own bare and naked and scarce salvation only, but our everlasting inheritance, incorruptible and undeniable with all its unsearchable riches. Heaven and earth, time and eternity, creation and providence, grace and glory are all laid up in Christ. And then Christ and all his unsearchable riches are laid open to prayer. And then it is said to every one of us, Choose you all what you will have, and command me for it. All God's grace and all his truth has been coined out of purpose into promises. And then all these promises are made yes and amen in Christ. And then out of Christ, they are published abroad to all men in the word of the gospel. And then all men who read and hear the gospel are put upon to test their metal. For what a man loves, that a man is. What a man chooses out of a hundred offers, you are sure by that who and what that man is. And accordingly, put the New Testament in any man's hand, 
and set the throne of grace wide before any man, and you need no omniscience to tell you that man's true value. If he lets his Bible lie unopened and unread, if he lets God's throne of grace stand till death idle and unwanted, if the depth and the height, the nobleness and the magnificence, the goodness and the beauty of divine things have no command over him and no attraction to him, you do not wish me to put words upon the smallness of that man's mind. Look yourselves at what he has chosen. Look and weep at what he has neglected and has forever lost. But there are other men. There are men of a far nobler blood than that man is. There are great men, royal men. These are men of noble stuff and cast into a noble mold. And you will never satisfy or quiet these men with all you can promise them or pour out upon them in this life. They are men of a magnificent heart. And only in prayer have their hearts ever got full scope and a proper atmosphere. They would die if they did not go to pray. They magnify their office. You cannot please them better than to invite and then ask them to go to God on your behalf. They would go of their own notion and accord for you, even if you never asked them. They have prayed for you before you asked them, more than you know. They're like Jesus Christ in this, and he will acknowledge them in this. While you were yet enemies, they prayed for you and as good as died for you. Number four. And then there is this final and noble thing about prayer also that the acceptableness of it and the power of it are in direct proportion to the secrecy and spirituality of it. As its stealth is, as its silence is, as its hiddenness away with God is, as its unsuspectedness and undeservedness with man is, as its pure goodness, pure love, and pure goodwill are, so does prayer perform its part when it is alone with God. The true closet of the saint of God is not built of stone and lime, the secret place of God and his people is not a thing of wood and iron and bolts and bars. At the same time, Christ did say, shut your door. Number five. And then, to cap and to crown it all, the supreme goodness and the superb generosity of God to its top perfection is seen in this, in the men he selects, prepares for himself, calls, and consecrates. It's told in the Old Testament to the blame of Jeroboam that he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not the sons of Levi. But what is written and read in the Levitical law to Jeroboam's blame, that very same thing, in these very same words, God's saints are this Sabbath day singing in their thousands to his praise before the throne of God and the Lamb. For ever since the day of Christ, it has been the lowest of the people, that is in other man's eyes, and in their own, it has been the poor and the despised, and the meek and the hidden and the downtrodden and the silent, who have a secret power and privilege with God, and have prevailed. It was so sometimes even in the Old Testament. The Lord makes poor, sings Samuel's mother, and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises up the poor out of the dust, and lifts up the beggar from the dunghill, and sets them among princes, and makes them inherit the throne of glory. And the mother of our great high priest herself sang, as she sat over his manger, as he has regarded the low estate of his handmaid. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. This then is the very topmost glory, and the very supreme praise of God, the men from among men that he takes, and makes them kings and priests of God. Let all such men magnify their office, and let them think and speak and sing magnificently of their God. There's this part in the sermon where he says, like, is there anything greater in the world than when someone, like, 
quote, pulls themselves up by their bootstraps, you know, like they start with nothing and they work their way, work their way, work harder, and they eventually become famous. I mean, how many, you know, songs and stories and movies have we seen of that story, the person with nothing? And in a sense, Alexander White is one of those stories. He had nothing, didn't have an education, worked, 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 became this famous preacher. He's like, isn't that one of the greatest things you can see in the world? And he's like, and yet... Like, compared to the heavenly rewards, that is nothing. Like, none of those things that you work so hard for in that mansion you build up matters. He's like, but you can kind of do that with heaven. Like, God says there's a reward for how we live our lives. And man, what if you, you know, you just started with the grace of God and what God did for you, but you worked really hard in that same way for the heavenly reward. And you were, you know, you were putting in time and you were praying for people and you were forgiving people and you were loving people and you didn't really care how they treated on you on earth because you were just putting that same effort that people put into building up something now, but you were building it in the heavenly after and you were just looking forward to seeing the next life. Something about that just sounds really cool. He just seemed to have the right perspective on life when he put that out there. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Nathaniel Owen. If you enjoyed this episode on Alexander White, visit our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes. We want to say thank you so much to so many uh, listeners who have done just obviously a good job of sharing our episode and talking about our episodes because the show is growing and we can't do that without you guys. If you would like to send this episode to someone, maybe this was a different way of looking at prayer than you had thought about it, um, feel free to tell them about it or put it out on social media. And if you want to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, we put information that doesn't always make it into the episode up there. And so it's a great chance for you to find out even more about each of these speakers. Maybe you're doing the dishes or working out or on your way to work right now and you're thinking, I could be on Revive Thoughts, I can read a sermon. I, we have some sermons that we need read and I won't guarantee and say you will be on the show, but we have some definite opportunities right now for you to be on the show as a speaker and we would love to have you. This is Troy and Joel and this is Revive Thoughts. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. And if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.